Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. Hello, and welcome to Still Watching, the television podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Erin Vanderhoof, and I am an avid royal watcher here at Vanity Fair. And earlier this year, I was one of the co-hosts of our podcast, Dynasty, which looked at the lives of the British royal family. So today, I'm here to talk about a program which I am very excited about, Netflix's The Crown. All 10 episodes of its fifth season have just debuted, and joining me to talk about this is my Vanity Fair colleague and expert on both fictional and real-life royals, Julie Miller. Hi, Erin. I'm so excited to talk about this new season, which picks back up with the royals at the beginning of the 90s, which I think even casual royal watchers will know that this was not a, a great decade for the family. And later in the episode, you'll hear our conversation with someone who knows the royals better than anyone, Vanity Fair's royals correspondent, Katie Nichol. Timing is timing is everything. And, you know, we know that they suspended filming in, in respect of, of the Queen's death. But for this to be going out just weeks into King Charles III's reign is, you know, inconvenient. I suppose it's a bit of an understatement. And we should let listeners know from the start that we're going to primarily talk about the first five episodes of the season since they all just dropped and we can't expect you to simultaneously watch them. But we will mention some plot details from later in the season as well. So beware, there are a few spoilers ahead. So let's get to Charles and Diana, which is the, you know, understandably the centerpiece of this season, especially for us American watchers like this this segment of time in those two people's lives is like why we care about the royals. So Dominic West has taken over as Charles and Elizabeth Debicki is Diana. And we see Olivia Williams take over as Camilla. So, Julie, what do you think of the new cast? Well, Elizabeth Debicki is such a standout for me. She's completely mesmerizing. She has that whole she's always sort of looking down with her big eyes looking up. Um, so she is just phenomenal to watch. Dominic West is interesting because when he was cast, I didn't know that I would buy him as Charles just because Dominic is more, should we say, traditionally handsome. Um, but the series, he I thought he did a really, really remarkable job. And I sort of forgot about it, you know, a few minutes into the first episode. What did you think? Well, I'm I'm one of those crazy people that thinks Prince Charles is perfectly handsome. I will say that I think that Dominic is like a little less awkward than Charles. And so there's a sense that, you know, at least in thinking about him as Charles, that you sort of have the kind of person Charles kind of wishes he could be or wants to be. There's like a bit of bravado that he puts on. And I I think that that works really well in in this season where it's all about just it's it's all about like Charles trying to take control for the first time and like how 
poorly it goes very frequently. Right. No, if I were Charles, I would love that casting. <laughs> yeah. And then I think Olivia Williams as Camilla is just it. She's really does just a great job of because to play that role in the season, it's like a person who is losing control of her entire life and figuring out how she is going to deal with that. And like she's she just nails these sort of like looking out the window eyes wide and surprised that everyone's there or like, you know, head in their hand, like, what have I done? <laughs> right. And we really see a sort of warmth to her and you understand why, you know, Charles loves her, what she brings to the table. But I I loved Emerald Fennel last season, but Olivia Williams just completely looks like Camilla so much with that, the fringe and everything. I was, I, I couldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. The first five episodes cover a few major moments in Diana's life um, in terms of fashion. The highlight probably here is the famous revenge dress, which I got to speak to the costume designer about recreating. Um, she had some interesting things to say about Diana in general, just because last season we saw a lot of Diana out on these red carpets going to these glamorous events. And this time around, we see Diana sort of isolated. We see her a lot in her Kensington Palace apartment when she's going out it's almost like she's going out in disguise so they sort of tapped into a a spy thriller type feel in terms of dressing her Um, but episode two really dives into one of the most famous diana moments of all and i think this was really the breaking point for the royal family with her it was her interview with andrew morton that became the book diana her true story course we know she secretly collaborated with him and in this episode we get to see sort of a TikTok of how that happened well i just loved the juxtaposition so you know famously she had an intermediary that she would record tapes it was a doctor and he the the doctor friend would take the tapes to andrew morton and so at no point in time had they ever you know they had never even met i'm pretty sure i love the way that the episode kind of juxtaposes like the sort of almost like slapsticky spy nature of the the workaround that's going on here with just the absolute utter heartbreak of listening to Elizabeth Debicki say the things that Diana really said on that tape like that for all they play around with dialogue in this show they stick really really close to the things that Diana actually said and that is to me that was just the most I think that was the most heartbreaking moment I have ever seen on the crown because you you so infrequently get to have this opportunity to hear, I mean, especially just like a young mother who feels isolated talking about the way she really feels about things. How quickly did things start to go sour? Well, I started to unravel at the honeymoon. And at night, I was having these dreadful nightmares about Camilla. When the queen was there, I always felt second place and Charles barely looked at me I just felt like a fish out of water and I was so thin my bones were just sticking out all over me when I talked to him about photographers pounding me he talked about Camilla and I tried to be brave make a speech in Welsh I got no support and I just felt like a lamb to the slaughter did you feel that your husband was committed to the marriage in the same way that you were well there was always the other one so then later Andrew Morton did really release those transcripts uh, after her death which are incredible yeah, and to read. They're they're incredible. It was difficult for me to to watch that episode as much as I also loved it. I cannot imagine that 
anybody who knew her well is going to be able to actually sit down and watch this episode because it is it is heartbreaking. Right. It bears noting Andrew Morton was an official consultant on the series. So this episode is pretty true to life. Um, including I, the part that Diana, I guess, initially warmed to Andrew Morton because he had written a previously previous story that sort of irked Charles. So that was part of the reason why she warmed to him. At certain points, this does kind of feel like Diana fan fiction. A little oh my bit. gosh! Like the scenes, but there are certain points where, like, definitely when when Diana is like getting off zingers on Charles, that it's just so funny, so funny. But her like winding her the phone cord around her arm while she sits on bed on her bed, like digging into her chocolate ice cream. It really was some sort of fanfic. <laughs> yeah. So Diana does get to have her say with the Andrew Morton book when it comes out, though nobody knew it at the time. Uh, the, you know, everybody was wondering, how do they know this if she didn't participate? And the workaround was pretty good. But then later, Charles gets to have his say in the famous interview with Jonathan Dimbleby, which we see in episode five. And with apologies to King Charles III, the current reigning monarch, I think we have to call it the Tampon Gate episode. We sure do. And, you know, when when you spoke to Katie Nichols, she was speaking a little bit about the, the show blurring fact and fiction. And this is an episode where it gets especially tricky because they recreate this conversation that Camilla and Charles had using a lot of the actual dialogue. Oh, darling, I just want you now. Do you? Mm. So do I. Desperately. Desperately. God, I wish I could just... Live inside your trousers or something, so much easier. <laughs> what are you going to turn into, a pair of knickers? <laughs> well, God forbid, a Tampax and just my luck. <laughs> Idiot. What a wonderful idea. So if someone's just kind of clocking into that episode and they see, you know, these lines being recreated, they might imagine that the entire episode as it is was true to life. Um, I spoke to Sally Bedell Smith, who uh, is a royal biographer who wrote a book about Charles. And I was so interested because it shows Charles calling the Parker Bowles household and, and Camilla's husband picking up. She said that didn't really happen. But, you know, when the call was placed, Camilla was at home with the kids, mm-hmm. which I found interesting. But I, I want to get your take on this. It was, it was, fascinating to see them construct this episode because they're recreating one of the most humiliating moments in Charles's life just as he finally becomes king. But then in the back half of the episode, it's like they tried to sort of reverse damage control that by speaking about the prince's trust and all this incredible work he did. When the title card comes up and it's like, the prince's trust has directed <laughs> 1.4 billion pounds to it's like, right. You're right that if you in its construction, it does kind of feel like, oh, okay, if we're going to do this to him, we got to at least like take him seriously or respect him. I love and like respect Prince Charles deeply right now or King Charles III now, but I think it was realizing that there is a sense in which he is a pretty regular guy who's not always thinking about the consequences of his actions, who like does have this genuine passion to make the world better, but is like always stepping on rakes. He's lived his life in the sense that like the most embarrassing things he's ever done are like there on TV. And yet he still has like enough like self-regard that he gets up every day and goes on. Right. I think in the show they're saying like, oh, he was kind of like coaxed to 
you know, talk about his adultery on TV. But like Dimbleby had been working on a biography for a lot longer. And the biography like goes into detail about adultery, about the breakdown of the marriage, about really personal things between him and Diana. So I think that it had been planned. But the first thing that he does after this TV show, Diana goes to it airs the night it airs. Diana goes to a Vanity Fair party at the Serpentine Gallery uh, in the revenge dress. First thing he does is he goes to Los Angeles for a one week tour to like, I guess the stated purpose is to see how the city's recovered from the L.A. riots. And he but he also was there, like has tea with Barbara Streisand and, uh, how you know, not? yeah, goes to goes to a, the party, like one of the, the only big parties that Aaron Spelling ever threw at Candyland and went to a high school in Compton and saw, you know, kids who had started sort of like a lunch truck there, went to a Vaughn supermarket, just like all of these crazy things. And it's just like so funny to me to like all of these pictures of like Charles, like enjoying like the real LA while he's like, you know, set the world on fire in Britain. And I think so, which brings us to, you know, the the end of this episode. I like, even if people don't like The Crown, I just like hope that they like <laughs> watch the scene because it's so great. We're listening to Don't Sweat the Technique. He's with young black kids who are breakdancing and Charles, Dominic West as Charles, just like starts dancing, too. And it's really great. And what I love about it is that I have seen Charles so many times, like on the sidelines of a bunch of people dancing for him, being like nodding and like, yes, yes, proper and polite. And there's something so hilarious about just imagining him for once, just like getting to be that guy who is there because he belongs there and like is having fun. Well, Aaron, you don't have to imagine because you can go on YouTube and search Prince Charles breakdancing and there is actual video I learned last night of him in 1985 on a similar like disco dance floor in his classic double-breasted jacket. And I have to give it to him. He wasn't as smooth as Dominic West, but he really tried. You see him do the robot. You see him do all these sorts of moves. He gave it a good try. So I, you know, hats off to him. That's amazing. See, once again, I'm just I'm glad I'm glad that everybody else is getting to it. (laughs) I have to watch that. Wow. I know it was it was quite the discovery. Um, But it is interesting to know, I guess, some around this time of the tampon gate. Prince Charles put a sign on his dressing room saying, be patient and endure. So that's sort of perfect and poignant. I hope it's still there when this this season premieres. So that brings us to the central figure of the whole series, Queen Elizabeth II, now played by Imelda Staunton. But the first episode draws a not especially flattering parallel between the queen and the royal yacht, which at this point in the 90s, was incredibly old-fashioned and expensive. So, Julie, how did it feel to watch this when we basically just finished Morning the Queen? It it was a little awkward for me, and there were moments where I could get lost in storylines, and there were moments where I was very aware of the timing of this, this new season coming out, and I think this episode was maybe especially to watch. There's a scene of Elizabeth making the case as to why the government should keep funding Britannia. And she has a line like, all of my other palaces were inherited, which might be the least sympathetic line ever uttered on the crown. Um, But it just, you know, really the whole season was a little bit hard because this is 
it seems like her low light reel. These were her hardest hits, and there's something that just seems a little bit cruel about rewatching that. But at the same time, as an entertainment viewer, it makes for incredible drama. So I think that, to me, it was very helpful watching this only a month after I've been thinking a lot about and even just I think it becomes a thing that people say in a knee-jerk way like she sacrificed so much for her duty to the nation like people said that in the wake of her death so much people will be saying about that her for forever I think what this season does an incredible job of is laying bare what that really means she you know she in order to in order to be the great, you know, head of state, she really did kind of leave her kids, you know, they didn't get as much attention from her as they would have in any other situation. And you have your episode where all three of the kids, Andrews, with that just like horrible wig, <laughs> the horrible haircut, it's so good. Those bangs. Those bangs. Uh, you know, all three of the kids come and, and talk about not only that their marriages are failing, but that they are like deeply weird and unhappy people. and sacrificing the yacht to stay in the good graces of the people, sacrificing her children's sort of mental happiness. You know, I think then losing everything that her family has built or a lot of it in a fire, then just these are her lowlights. But I think that these are the sacrifices. And I think that I think it was a really good idea to play the moment where she gives this speech and the queen mother afterwards is like, why did you do that? Like, you're the queen. You don't have to apologize. But the, but the Queen is like, no, I, I do. It has been, by some margin, the worst year of my reign. Quite possibly my life. I'm happy for people to know. No wonder their Queen is depressed. That I am made of flesh and blood. And that perhaps I ha- we have fallen short in our duty as a family. And owe them an apology. That's, I don't want to also sacrifice my ability to just have human emotion. <laughs> right. No, I felt like that was a really redeeming sequence. And to bookend the episode with those scenes, I thought was a nice, nice touch. Still watching. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show Love to See It. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. So to talk about all of the real-world significance of this... I talked to Dynasty co-host Katie Nichol, who is also Vanity Fair's royal reporter. Katie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. First, I just really want to know, you know, on the other side of the pond among the royals of reporters and the royal watchers, how are people feeling about the return of the crown so soon after the queen's death? Well, that's really interesting that you ask, Erin, because I was at a lunch yesterday with some former courtiers and... Um, One said they absolutely wouldn't be watching and they were not going to tune in. And the other one said it was just, um, it it was too, uh, too tempting. And there's been just so much hype. They, they won't be able to help themselves, but tune in and watch it. And, um, 
I suspect that given all of the hype and the PR that this series has had, you know, even before it's actually aired, it wouldn't surprise me at all if this was probably the most popular, most watched series. But it's going to feel very, very different to the others because obviously it's covering a much more recent controversial and explosive period of royal history that many, many people are so familiar with. So I think there is an interest in in people wanting to see it and to interpret it in their own way. And I often think when something has had as much press, negative or positive, as, as this series has had, people actually want to watch it to make up their own minds. Yeah. I mean, what do you think about the idea that it's, you know, perhaps unfair for Netflix to not emphasize more strongly that it's fictional? Well, I, I've said for a while that I think it really should carry a disclaimer. And, um, you know, I, I think that is that is a feeling that that is quite is quite common over here, particularly and in, in Britain. I, I think it was it was great that they put the disclaimer on the trailer, but I think uh, probably people would like to see it on the whole series. I mean, many programs carry a disclaimer. It doesn't discredit the program in any way. It doesn't detract from the content in any way. And I think it would just serve as a as a reminder to people that you're not watching a history lesson. And I think that's the danger in all of this. Um, that because the cinematography is so brilliant and the casting is so incredible, you know, even for me as, as a seasoned royal correspondent, someone that's done this job for many, many years, when I sort of sit back and watch it, not to review it with you guys and to sort of talk about it in a professional capacity, but actually to just sit back and enjoy it, uh, even I have to remind myself that we're watching fiction because it's just done so brilliantly. But I think people have to remember they're watching someone's interpretation of those events. So I think one thing that you've reported in the past is that Camilla is the royal, that Queen Camilla is the royal who actually watches the show. And it seems, you know, that she kind of even understands a little bit that it is somebody's interpretation. There was that recent report that when she met Dominic West, she jokingly called him your majesty. So she's not really bothered by it. But do you think the rest of the royals are as relaxed? Well, I think Camilla is, is more relaxed than the other royals in many, many ways. I mean, I think she takes the crown as we should all take it, which is with a pinch of salt and as entertainment and not much more than that. I think it says so much about her as a person that she can, you know, watch the actress who conveys her in the last series and then happily chat to her as she did when I was there at Clarence House at a at a charity engagement. You know, she understands that these are actors, they are doing a job. She's not taking it too seriously. I know from a friend of hers that you know she actually really enjoyed watching the last series and sort of watched it with a with a large glass of red wine. And I think good for her. Um, Charles has seen some of the crown. I think the last episode, I think the last series, he he watched some of it, but not all of it, feeling that it was um it was getting a little too close to the bone. And so I would be very surprised if um, if the king watches this series. I'd be surprised if, if any of the family members watch it. I suspect if anyone is to watch it, um, it'll probably be Camilla because, um, because I think she's got, she's got an interest. She's got a sense of humor about the whole thing and she doesn't take it too seriously. So I know one really tough part of this, especially I think is, you know, as much as it is hard to be portraying the queen so close after her death, I think Charles's portrayal so close to him ascending the throne has is also a source of controversy. So 
I know that Sir John Major came out and kind of said point blank like that Charles didn't try to get his mom to abdicate. And that was really controversial. Like, what do you think is is sort of behind that that push that are more people are kind of saying, like, no, that didn't happen. And what is there anything else that you see causing controversy on that side? Well, I think there are a couple of plot lines that are potentially problematic, controversial and, you know, do have the do you have the potential to sort of backfire on the royal family or at least put them in the limelight for the wrong reasons? I think the story, Erin, that you just pointed out about this alleged sort of plan for Major, who was the prime minister at the time, and uh, Charles, then the Prince of Wales, to oust the Queen, I mean, is ludicrous. It didn't happen. I can completely understand why he would go on the record to um, to actually set the record straight and to say, well, actually, this didn't happen because the point is the royals can't really do that. Another plot line that I'm sure is going to attract even more headlines um, is the friendship between Penny Romsey and the late Duke of Edinburgh. And, um, you know, the, the, the clear suggestion in the latest series of The Crown is that there was more than a platonic relationship between Philip. And that's pushing a, a theme, I think, that sort of began in some of the earlier series of The Crown, sort of very much playing into that stereotype of Philip as a womanizer, um, those suggestions of adultery that are conveyed um, through the storylines. You know, that that's I think a lot of people feel that's that's quite disrespectful to um, Philip's memory. Of course, he's not here to defend himself. It's not something that they would ever speak out about anyway. But I can see that as being another sort of potentially controversial plot line. That brings up, I think, one piece of controversy about the show in general, which is, you know, Peter Morgan has said that this is a love letter to the queen. And when they're filming series six, they even paused it out of respect for her after her death. Does it feel fair to you to say that this is a love letter to her? I don't think it is a love letter. I think that's, um, I, I, I don't. I, I think it's, um, it, it's certainly a nod to the endless fascination into the monarchy. I mean, don't get me wrong, it is beautifully shot. It's brilliantly done. It's a, it's a fantastic piece of drama. But it is drama. You know, I, I think I think the problem is for for the Crown and, and for Peter Morgan is that the early series clearly um you know are about a period of time that very few people remember. There was a nostalgia about it, and um as we've got closer to the present, it has I think felt more uncomfortable. To watch, um, I think they've sort of pushed it as far as they, as far as they can. But a love letter to the Queen, uh, I think not. I think in 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 portraying Princess Diana this time around, we're getting close to the things that Prince Harry and Prince William have said are super super sensitive subjects for them. Still super painful. I think that when later in the season we get to a recreation of Martin Bashir forging documents and that whole panorama interview, you know, it's almost like refilmed in the show. Is there anything else you're aware of from this period that is just like painful for and unwelcome for the royals to revisit at all? Like no way of doing it would do anything but causing them pain. Well, I mean, I think the, the Bashir is, is a good example of 
of something in the current series that potentially will be quite distressing and upsetting to William and Harry. I mean, William, you'll, you'll remember after the BBC did a quite extensive investigation into Bashir and found that he had, you know, been duplicit in getting that interview um, and all the sort of murky means he used to, to lure Diana into talking to him. You know, William made it very clear that because of what had been discovered in that investigation, that this interview should never be screened in full again. And in fact, the BBC have given their word that it won't. So the idea that it's being reenacted, it's it's being reinterpreted and by the Crown, I mean, certainly if the royals aren't watching, I would imagine the royal lawyers will be watching that episode particularly closely. But I think it does, it does churn up a whole load of of upset. This covers probably the most painful period in recent royal history. And of course, you know, the actual crash itself in Paris is covered. Watching that is going to be very upsetting. I mean, not that the princes will watch it, but I would imagine it would be incredibly upsetting, incredibly upsetting for them. Um, you know, now we know that the cast of, of the production were offered counselling after having to film those scenes. Well, I think that gives you every indication that it, it, you know, this this was highly sensitive, a highly emotional, um, a highly emotional sequence to film. It'll be a highly emotional sequence for many people to watch it as well. Is there anything else, Katie, that you feel like people that could help people? You know, maybe even in the U.S., have a bit of a sense of what this really means to British people, especially so soon after the beginning of the new reign. Timing is. Timing is everything. And, you know, we know that they suspended filming in, in respect of, of the Queen's death. But for this to be going out just weeks into King Charles III's reign is, you know, inconvenient, I suppose, is a bit of an understatement. Um, I think it's, uh, it, you know, it, it's, it is very uncomfortable for, for Charles. It's uncomfortable for the royal family at, at a time when he's really trying to sort of put the spotlight on the positive t- start to the reign, the work that he's doing, the sort of markers that he's putting very firmly in place to, to signal to us what his reign is going to look like. It does just feel uh, a little a little unfair that um, that the start of his reign is, is is being overshadowed by these controversial issues, whether it's you know Harry's autobiography or this or this series. Um, and I think. I think the few I sat down with someone from the palace not so not so long ago and asked them about it, and they they were very clear. You know, this is drama. We're we're not getting involved in a crown wrangle. You know, this is a drama, and people will hopefully take it and interpret it as as a drama. And I think that's the message, really. Um, you know, I'll I'll be watching it. Um, many many people will be watching. It. I suspect this is probably going to be the most popular series yet. But you know, whilst devouring it for 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 the for the brilliant production that it is, just just remember that, you know, these conversations are someone's impressions and interpretations of what was said around those family dinner tables, because actually no one really knows. And um, just to remember that it's, um, you know, it's it's dramatic, but it is drama with a capital D. Let's not forget that. All right. Thank you so much, Katie. Julie, there is so much more to talk about with the season of The Crown, including the entire back half of the season, which we have not gotten into yet. 
So what are some of the highlights for you from those other five episodes? It was really interesting to see William as a teenager, I thought. And it bears noting that William is played in those teenage scenes by Dominic West's actual son, Sinan West. Um, and you see a little bit of him, you know, coming into this realization about what his future is going to hold. And you see how much he's affected by this war, this full-out war between his parents. And you also see him when he's at Eton and living in Windsor, getting to have these weekly teas with his grandmother. And we finally see the queen in this grandmother role that we haven't seen her that much in before. So that was interesting to me, especially knowing that season six gets into the Kate Middleton of it. Mm-hmm. What did you What did you think about those episodes? Well, I think for one, especially the way that Harry is not a part of it at all, but also that William is the one who, you know, for the queen, being a grandmother is also she's teaching him about, you know, the British Constitution. So it's like she shows her love through giving him access to the tools that are going to be his job in the future. And you can tell how, you know, Harry doesn't ever get to have those so I feel like, you know, they're setting that up really well for the future. The real, the, to me, the highlight of the back half of the season is the relationship with Hasnat Khan. It's so, it, you just, you get to see Diana have the kind of like adult flirtation, you know, kind of joking, seductive relationship that she never got to have. And I think the the whole season does music so well, but there's like a moment where they're sitting in her Kensington Palace apartment listening to Edwin Collins' A Girl Like You. And it's just so like, I don't think that that's actually a song Diana would have listened to, but it's like so perfect. Like she's in a 1990s British rom-com. She's in her rom-com. Like amazing. She gets that. And of course it ends sadly, but I just love that so much. Right. It was nice because it's such a hard season for Diana for her to, her to have that little moment of light and hope meeting mm-hmm. him. I wasn't sure that we were going to get that relationship on screen, but I'm glad we did. I also, I found it interesting that they, I don't know if you found it interesting, they don't really get into Diana's affairs at all. Maybe there was an early reference to them, but there's so much focus on Charles's affairs mm-hmm. when when Diana had her own. Did you notice that? Yeah, yeah. I think that wasn't I think in the last season they did dealt with it a little um with James Hewitt, but I think but yeah, it's just never I mean, I think partially it's cuz, you know, she had them but not with the one person who he would want to marry. She right, that's true. Marrying, that's you know? true. And there were so many other plots yeah, to get to. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I think that I'm really glad that they ended, you know, that we know already it's been it's come out that her death is going to be really the season six, which is going to be the final season. It's the only one left. And there is a sense, I think, especially with Imelda Staunton as the queen, you know, coming thinking about her 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 success as a mother, thinking about her success as a sister, thinking or, you know, or lack thereof, thinking about her success as a spouse thinking about her success as a head of state when she's talking to Boris Yeltsin, I think that there is a sense in which you really do feel it start to wrap up because, and it it has to because the woman at the center is no longer the queen. It was surprising to me that the episode went so far up, so close to um, Diana's final days. It sort of ends her storyline. This is a spoiler alert, but um, seeing Fayed and 
Mohammed Fayyad, and she was supposed to go on holiday with the boys, but she didn't have a place to go. So he offers her a yacht, and we, we know that what's to come is that she will take those kids on that yacht, and from, from that vacation, you know, there will bloom this sort of romance between Mohammed's son, Dodi, and Diana. But I was surprised it took us so close. Did you expect that? Well, I think I think that the this so well, I think it's episode three where you know we like literally like begin with the birth of Dodie sure. that I was like okay I feel like we're really we're setting up that he is going to be like a side character of this season but an important one and which he which he turns out to be and he's I I feel like I'm I really liked getting that little glimpse of him before they met I'm glad that they didn't just kind of like drop him in at that point but. It's funny to think about that from a storytelling perspective because it's just like, wow, they're really like that is that is the ultimate cliffhanger, except for that we all know what's going to happen. So I think it's like surprising, but really effective. Right. And I think if you want some more reading after the season, it's fascinating to read about Muhammad Fayyad. And there's just so much, I guess, that they really couldn't get into in the season. But he was obsessed with security and you know, according to Tom Bauer, who wrote the unauthorized biography, he had all of these like bugging devices and security devices. And, you know, when when Dodie would end up going off with Diana, he had essentially hourly updates as to to where they were and what they were doing. And he was just completely masterminding that whole situation, which I'm sure we'll get into very early on in that new season. Mm-hmm. So, you know, leaving on a cliffhanger, just like season five of The Crown, uh, I think that does it for this special episode of Still Watching. Richard Lawson and Chris Murphy will be back on Sunday to talk about episode three of The White Lotus, but you can find so much more coverage of The Crown on VanityFair.com, a lot of it written by Julie Miller. Julie, any highlights? Um, Yeah, I I spoke to a few royal biographers about some of the real life storylines that I was just curious how much, you know, they actually matched up to the episode. So I dig into a little bit the Duke of Windsor's beloved valet. I I really appreciated that storyline. I get into Philip and Penelope. We get into the yacht, Britannia. We get into Muhammad and Dodie's very, very complicated relationship. But there is much, much more. And I'll also be speaking to Andrew Morton at length about his thoughts on the season and what he thought of his characterization on the show. Oh, my goodness. I cannot wait to hear about that. Our editor and producer is Dave Gonzalez, and we had production help from Peyton Hayes and Katie Rich. We had technical assistance from Scott Lee. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Alexis Quadrado. Thank you for listening and God save the king. (laughs) 